Beyond the headlines and deeper than the news cycle, this is Cricket Inside the Story with Knuckle Pandey. From 1996 to 2003, the nascent Republic of South Africa, slowly emerging from generations of legally sanctified, racist internal separation, told itself its stories by the vehicle of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Founded by Nelson Mandela himself and chaired by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, it was the first such process anywhere in the world to be held in public, setting a precedent since followed around the world. Now, in 2021, South African cricket has its own version. But beyond the allegations, the insinuations and the power politics, what are the social justice and nation-building hearings? What do they mean and what impact will they have on cricket in the Republic? Firdos Munda is ESPN Crick Info's South Africa correspondent and has been the key person to follow if you wanted to know what was going on at the hearings. She was by far the outstanding candidate for this episode and I am delighted that she has agreed to help me go inside the story. Firdos, welcome. Thank you, that's such a generous introduction, I'm honoured. The social justice and nation-building hearings became more noteworthy and more newsworthy to people who haven't been following them directly during the Men's T20 World Cup when Quinton de Kock did not and then did take the knee. And we will come on to that, but let's start at the beginning. How did the SJN come into being? So the SJN was actually started by the Cricket South Africa board that is no longer in office. And they resigned en masse towards the end of last year when really the issues around them being unable to secure sponsorship and being unable to run the game just came to a head and we actually had the sports minister threaten to intervene and strip the body of its official status. So really a complete mess of a board. But one of those board members, Dr. Eugenia Kula Amayal, who has done some incredibly strange things during her time on the board and afterwards in terms of naming and shaming sponsors, um, accusing people of being brown envelope journalists and, and all, all kinds of things. It was really her brainchild. She decided that Cricket in this country needed a reckoning, very similar to that TRC you described at the beginning. And she decided that because of what had happened when Lungi and Gidi was asked whether he thought the South African national men's team needed to do something for Black Lives Matter after England and West Indies took a knee. And Lungi and Gidi responded in the affirmative. He didn't come out and say this. He was answering a question. And that prompted several former white players to say that Lungi and Gidi was out of place for saying what he said, and then to make very ridiculous comparisons with farm murders, which are negligible in this country, and to say that it was one against the other and really to look at it as a very dichotomous issue, which it isn't. So this kind of resulted in an outpouring of stories from former players of colour talking about being othered, talking about feeling discriminated against, and really saying things that I think we all knew were there, a lot of these things were never said before. A lot of these things were assumed. And a lot of these things were just part of the fabric of being in South Africa. We live in a society which was legalized in terms of white supremacy up until when I was born. I was born into that system. So we're only, you know, 27 years is really what we are dealing with here. And so I think it was a great idea from the board to institute the process. It's been costly. It's been painful. It's been costly money-wise and emotions-wise, but it's been necessary. And honestly, I think if other organizations, be they sporting or corporate organizations, did this in this country, we are going to have an outpouring of this kind of thing. You've seen it in England. The tip of the iceberg has been discovered. You know there's a mountain of stories coming about abuse and discrimination and just this feeling and sensation and experience of being treated differently. It's necessary, and I'm so glad it happened. The question then is, as you say, 27 years after South Africa became a unified, at least on a legal basis, nation, 30 years after South Africa as a unified nation post-apartheid ban first played international cricket, the question is, why now? It doesn't seem that this would have been out of place at any point in South Africa's modern history. If the Black Lives Matter movement hadn't come to dominate South African sport, I don't think players of color would have felt that the time was right and they would have felt empowered enough to tell their stories. And I also don't think 
that the administrators would have seen the opportunity to air some of these views. Again, I think why now has got a lot to do with the board that was in place, malfunctioning as they were. This is perhaps the only thing that they did right. And that needed a board that was interested in Africanization, interested in Black consciousness, interested in transformation at its most raw level, because transformation is really about the change from one system of dominance to a system of inclusion that takes time, that takes understanding. And ideally, we would love that it would happen organically. That has not happened. It hasn't happened anywhere in South Africa. And I think the push then becomes towards aggressive transformation, which is something we saw in the place like Zimbabwe in the early 2000s. Zimbabwe as a country, Zimbabwe as a cricketing nation. And and I do think South Africa, because of its resistance to organic change, had to have this moment. We will come on to the transformation policy and the ways in which it was implemented at the top level, at the most visible level, and at lower levels in South African sport, particularly cricket. But you mentioned that previous board. It's probably worth giving a little brief sketch, brief sketch, because this could be a whole podcast series in itself, about the turbulent recent history of cricket South Africa, the fact that the board was nearly dissolved, the loss of sponsors. Who were those board members? How did they come to be in this position? And just a very quick sketch for people who weren't following the near daily avalanche of stories around the previous South African board. I think we'd have to go back to the 2017-18 summer when Cricket South Africa's attempts to launch a global T20 league failed. And when they failed, former CEO Harun Logart left the organization. He was succeeded by Tabang Moroi, who was at the time the vice chairperson on the board. So it's very unusual for someone from the board to then take on an executive role, but that's what happened. Mr. Moroi did not have the relevant qualifications to be a CEO, and subsequent investigations have found that. And in the two years that he was in charge, things just kept going wrong. So South Africa ended up running Mzanzi Super League, which was a T20 franchise tournament for which they could not sell the television rights. They did two seasons of that and paid all the costs themselves. We're talking about a good hundred and something million rand, which is a lot of money in a South African cricket context. Mr. Moroi also did not like the idea of a players association. So he wanted to have more control and he didn't want the players to have a union. And that resulted in a lot of friction. And then he inevitably needed to save costs, especially because that global T20 league didn't happen. Money was being spent. He decided he would do that by restructuring domestic cricket, which is what we have now. And that restructure resulted in a protracted legal battle with the Cricketers Association with whom he had a very poor relationship. So in a nutshell, that's where we came to. The board oversaw Mr. Morowi's appointment, then his suspension, and ultimately his dismissal. At the same time, he was aided and abetted by some of those board members with whom he had served on the board before he became the acting CEO. And so what you had in South African cricket was two centers of power. We have a board and we have a members council, and the members council is made up of the presidents of our provincial unions, so cricket people. And the board is made up of some of those people and then independent people, people from the corporate world, business people. These two centers of power were at odds with each other. We've now moved to the point where we have an independent board, where the board consists of the corporate people, which, considering that Cricket South Africa is a business, makes sense. But of course, you'll always get the argument that if you're running a sports business, you need people who understand sport. So I think we're still in the process of figuring this out in terms of the right mix of people on a board, because of course you get cricket people who are also business people. In short, I mean, that's where we got to. Sponsors walked away because money was being lost, because there were threats of this fallout with the Players Association. Big sponsors left, Standard Bank, who'd supported Cricket South Africa for almost two decades. That's a massive sponsor to lose. Momentum, a financial insurance company who'd also supported them. And in fact, without Momentum, the women's team wouldn't be professional. They provided the money for the national women's team to be professionalized. They've walked away as well. So they've really lost a lot. And I think the house has burned to the ground as much as it could burn. And we're in a little bit of a rebuilding phase now. And in the middle of all of that, we saw part of the issue, part of the many issues which I've described was a transformation issue. So Mr. Morowi was also strong on transformation, wanted to see a stronger black, especially black African face to cricket in this country. And this is a recent term that we are using now to distinguish between what we call generic black, who are people like me of Indian or mixed race or other heritages, which are not white. And then black African who are 
people who are considered to be the indigenous people of this land, which is, I mean, I, I, we can't get into that because then we're going to go and talk about the Khoisan and a whole lot of other historical stuff. But basically, we've got this distinction. We know that people like me would be considered black up until the mid-2000s, and now we're considered generic black, and there's another category of people called black African. And we understand that. Apartheid's evils were enacted the most on the majority black African population, and there is a great sense of empathy for the fact that those are the people that need to now benefit the most from transformation policies. I don't think anybody is against the obviousness of what needs to happen in this country. I think there is resistance to the way that it's happened, perhaps. And then, of course, there's the white supremacy dinosaurs who are, you know, we're hoping that in a generation or two, we won't have to deal with that anymore, I suppose. That's kind of where we are. But yeah, it would probably take a whole nother podcast series, I think. So we have a board in transition with laudable aims, but without the relevant expertise and without the relevant quality of personnel to push this through, we have a loss of financial sponsors, which, as a motivation to change, I suppose is about as powerful as it gets in politics, and sport is politics, no more so than in South Africa, but everywhere else as well. So the hearings get set up. What are the aims of the hearings? What power do they have? And they're chaired by Dumisa Nsebetsa, who was on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission back in the late 90s and early 2000s. How was he chosen? Who chose him? And who is assisting him? So just a little overview of the powers and personnel of the hearings. Yeah, so I think it's really important to note that the hearings took place under a new board. And this new board could have said, okay, that's a wonderful idea. We're not doing it. Thank you. Let's carry on. They decided they would do it. They decided they would accept this thing that the old board had conceptualized, and they would run with it. At that point, a transformation ombudsman, uh, Dumisa Ntsebeza, had been appointed. He'd been appointed primarily by Dr. Eugenia Kula Amayal. They do seem to have a personal relationship. She very comically gave him a bat at the end of her testimony, a cricket bat, which she had signed herself, which really did not go down very well amongst people who were who were going to testify. And in fact, it's made a lot of people question the process because you can't have the person who instituted the hearings then be personal friends with the person who's overseeing the hearings. Be that as it may, we didn't see or hear from Dr. Kula Amayao again. And I think what transpired after that showed us that the hearings should have happened. So Advocate Nsebeza is not necessarily a cricket expert, which I think is an advantage. But uh, it does sometimes make it difficult when especially things like how many members of a squad are traveling and why is it that some people have to carry the drinks and you can't employ somebody from outside to come and carry the drinks. That became quite an issue at some point. But apart from that, he was assisted by two attorneys from Baxman's Attorney Group, which is one of the big law firms here. And there was no cross-examination at these hearings. So any questions that the attorneys asked. This was not a court proceeding, right? This was an open hearing, in which case you come and tell your story and questions that are asked are for clarification purposes only. And that meant that things couldn't really be interrogated, examined and dissected the way they would be in a court case. And it meant that there was, I guess, not a lot of fear that you would be pulled apart if what you were saying was untrue. But at the same time, it created room for, and we've subsequently in the rebuttals heard, of quite a lot of embellishment, especially from the players who were convicted of match fixing and who in fact accepted the deals that they had been given and pled guilty to the conspiracy to match fix and then came and told a whole another story. And that I think really threatened to derail these hearings because we had to have people from the ACSU come and explain exactly what happened and play very long video clips of people meeting with fixers and all of that is completely irrelevant to the SJN proceedings. And I think that was one sort of sideshow that could have been avoided. And perhaps if Advocate Nsebeza knew a little bit more about the history of the fixing, then maybe we wouldn't have gone down that route. The purpose of the hearings, to go back to your original question, was to give a voice to those people who had been previously discriminated against or currently discriminated against who felt they were unable to tell that story before. And then for the people who they had accused of discriminating against them to come and offer either an explanation, an apology, if they felt they had been wrongly implicated to offer a rebuttal, and we saw many of those. And so much like a TRC process, there is storytelling. And I think the ultimate aim is that there'll be some sort of apology, acceptance, forgiveness. However, we don't know what the ombuds will recommend. His report will be in at the end of this week. And we also 
don't know whether CSA will act on those recommendations. They don't have to. They can say, thank you very much. This is a great report. Wonderful process. Bye. Or they could take some of what he says and implement it. And this is a non-binding investigation. So having said all of that, for me, the main purpose of this was for people to air their voices and to finally be heard, because we are a country with a lot of silences. So it is run by lawyers, people with legal training, but does not have the strength of illegal proceedings. I understand that Advocate Unsebeza could not compel people to appear. And we'll come on to some of those who did not appear or submit any testimony in a bit. This report now that we're expecting the 6th of December today, as we record, although you're now saying it's expected at the end of this week. So that's a delay of a delay that was the 30th of November of a delay that was the 30th of September. I understand that these proceedings are, of course, complicated. But why has this succession of delays occurred? Because the ombudsman is busy with other things. He's been in Dar es Salaam. He's been attending to matters in the International Human Rights Court or International Criminal Court, something to that effect. So he has had other things to do as well. But primarily the big delay came because the people who wanted to respond, so those who had been implicated as being the discriminators, needed more time to prepare their responses. So they were initially given, I think it was three weeks, and then that got lengthened to up to two months. And these responses were very detailed, specifically the South African Cricketers Association, who had to respond to a lot of the claims made by the players who had accepted the match-fixing deals. So their response was very detailed. It was over 200 pages. Uh, Cricket South Africa's response was very detailed. Mark Boucher submitted a response. Graham Smith, A.B. de Villiers, from my understanding, Paul Harris. Jacques Rudolph. So many, many players whose names were mentioned put together affidavits. Not all of them, in fact, very few of them appeared in front of the ombuds. We had the South African Cricketers Association who appeared. We had Dr. Jacques Fall, the former acting CEO of Cricket South Africa, who appeared. So yeah, there were people who appeared, but a lot of the responses were written, and therefore we don't know what they said. And the ombuds would have had to go through all of these. We're talking about pages and pages and pages and pages of legalese. And that is primarily the reason that it's taken as long as it's taken. And just to add to that, the longer it takes, the more it costs, because the ombuds, as well as his assistants, need to be paid. And Cricket South Africa is an organization that filed a 221 million rand loss last year. So this has not been a cheap affair. Given that, it's interesting to note that this process is still being funded and that there has been no attempt, as far as I'm aware, for Cricket South Africa to distance themselves from these proceedings. We will come on to the impact and the fallout, as as it were, or the long-lasting implications of this. But let's get into the hearings themselves. And the people who appeared before them or submitted affidavits, we can break them down into a few different categories. So there's players of colour, people who submitted or spoke before the hearings about the abuses and isolations that they experienced, administrators and selectors, white players, particularly the the identified big five, will come on to that group, but the players of colour, the ones that got significant attention, Paul Adams, the former left arm wrist spinner, talking about a racist song that was sung at him repeatedly throughout his time. The 2007 World Cup comes up a lot as a flashpoint with Lotz Bossman talking about the divisions in that team. Omar Henry, the first black African to play for South Africa. Then one incident that came up again and again and again was the non-selection of Chaya Zondo. And that then brought in a number of people who were in selection positions at the time. Let's talk about the incidents referring to Chaya Zondo's non-selection. What happened there was that South Africa were playing an ODI series in India and it was too all. And the final game was being played and There were a couple of issues around selection in that David Miller was not in form in that series, but had come off a good series in Bangladesh earlier in the year. And JP Dumini got injured. And JP Dumini's injury meant that South Africa were without a middle order batter, but also without a bowling option. So middle order batter for middle order batter would mean that Kaya Zonda should have played because he was in the squad as the backup batter. And he had also had quite a good tour with the South African A side in India. But according to the selectors, because they also wanted the extra bowling option, they flew Dean Elgar in, and Dean Elgar was going to arrive anyway to play for the test squad, but they flew him in a little bit earlier. And then he played as that batter with the bowling option. And so that was why it was found at the time, when the investigation happened at the time, that leaving Kaya Zondo out 
was unfair, but it was not racially unfair. He was left out because they wanted a player who could also provide that bowling option. Dean Elgar, an opener by trade, batted at number seven, and at the time of this game in October 2015, had not bowled in a one-day international for over three years. He did not bowl in this game either, and has played only two ODIs since, scoring a combined six off 17 balls and bowling in neither. Subsequently, it's emerged that the selector on tour, Hussein Manak, testified that he was pressured by A.B. de Villiers not to pick Kaya Zondo and to pick Dean Algar instead. And the insinuation there, which is an insinuation that happens often in South African sport, is that powerful people who are white will tend to lean towards picking players who are white because that's familiar to them. That's what they know. That's what they trust. And, and they'll be more wary of picking a player who is black. Abi de Villiers himself has responded to that allegation. He has not denied that he didn't want to pick Kaya Zondo, but he has said that any decision he made from a selection perspective was in the best interests of the team. It's also worth pointing out that South Africa won the game and that they ended up winning the series. But the effect it had on Kaya Zondo was quite profound, and he gave a really emotional testimony, which actually he gave in camera and then asked to be made public after we'd heard Hussein Manak's testimony. So we kind of only saw it a week or two after the fact. And he talked about the mental health impact of that day and just feeling like he'd rather be anywhere else, feeling very isolated, feeling very disappointed in De Villiers, who he considered a hero. And then coming home and receiving a bit of abuse from domestic players on the circuit who used it as a way to sledge him. You know, that's the whole philosophy behind sledging is you're going to find what makes someone uncomfortable and tell them about it. Subsequent to that, I mean, he's done really well. He was reselected for the national one-day squad. He played in that one match against the Netherlands before that series got called off because of the new variant. And he also scored a double hundred. So his first Red Bull double hundred, he is a mature young man. He has reached a great level of understanding. And I think he's a great ambassador for how to handle oneself in these situations. And I have no doubt he'll go on to play for South Africa again and to really add value in these conversations. Kaya Zondo is also the only current player who testified at the hearings. Aaron Pangiso testified, and I mean, he's still playing, but definitely I don't think his aspirations to play for the national side can be too big anymore. So of the players who could potentially come into contention for the national side now, Kaya Zondo is the only one who testified. And a black African batter, which is, other than Temba Bavuma, almost a non-existence at the top level of South African cricket. You mentioned Hussein Manik and Linda Zondi, who both testified, both former selectors, who both testified regarding their role in the affair and the influence of A.B. de Villiers. The best way to approach this, I guess, is a little sum up of what Hussein Manik and Linda Zondi talked about in terms of the pressure that they felt was put upon them or whether they tried to defend or explain. And then let's get on to the role of the so-called Big Five. Now, this is a term that was turned by another former player, Roger Telemachus, who talked about I think again during that 2007 World Cup period in the mid-2000s, the influence of a white big five. He didn't name them. It's not particularly difficult to look at the squad list for that 2007 World Cup and work out who they were, some of whom have submitted, some of whom are in senior leadership positions now, all of whom are legends of South African and world cricket. Let's talk about what Hussein Manik and Linda Zondi said in explanation of their role in the issue and of the wider issue of who was selecting players and why and on what basis. I think we have to start by understanding that Hussein Manik has admitted to doing the wrong thing and to not following selection policy and for his role in whatever impact that had on Kaya Zondo's career. Linda Zondi was not there at the time. He was not on the tour, which meant that the decision is always up to the selection tour. So even though Linda was the convener, he ended up not being involved directly in that decision. But Linda, I think, has been quite clear that A.B. de Villiers and him have never had confrontations over selection. And I think he wanted to bring that across quite clearly. Uh, Linda spoke a little bit about other selection issues, especially involving things like Aaron Pangiso at the 2015 World Cup, where he didn't play a game because Imran Tahir was in good form and Aaron Pangiso happened to be the only player not to play on that tour. It often happened that a black player wouldn't play at a World Cup. Lutz Bosman or Roger at the 2007 World Cup didn't play. I think what becomes lost in this selection conversation is that selection is very subjective and it's going to be difficult to explain decisions if there's a little bit of race and a little bit of something else involved. It's not even like you look at a stat sheet 
and you say, okay, this guy has the most runs and therefore we'll pick him. Sometimes you're not going to pick the guy with the most runs. You're going to pick the guy with the third most runs because he's got more of a team personality or he can bat in a different position or he's younger and you think he's going to have a longer future with the national side. And there's so many reasons. And it's not as simple as numbers. It's not as simple as color by numbers. And I think that that is a nuance that I hope the ombuds doesn't lose in the report because I do think that selection is so subjective. In terms of this big five and For legal reasons, I'm not going to name them either. But in terms of the influence they had on selection, I think what comes across quite clearly in Linda's testimony, especially, is that the convener of selectors and his panel made the decision. They present the captain with the 11 he will put onto that field. The captain does not have a vote in selection. And that changed towards the end of 2007 or 8. So there's been a long time where the captain does not have a vote. Whether that means the captain can't apply pressure, that's another question. And a vote and pressure don't have to, you know, maybe there's a vote, maybe there's a little bit of pressure applied. I think what we know is that selection in South Africa doesn't get explained well. We don't often get told, yes, we've picked this player because we are trying to transform the team and he meets the quality. And I think, again, another conversation we tend to have here is that transformation and excellence are not mutually exclusive. You can pick a very good black player who will also help your transformation numbers. Kakhiso Rabat is an excellent example of that. Here is an excellent, outstanding Black performer, and it helps the transformation numbers. The same to a large degree with Lungi Ngidi, Temba Baguma, Andile Pekukwayo, Wayne Parnell, who's been picked most recently. All of our players of color, not only are they there because they're very good players, but also they're part of the transformation drive. And these two things can exist at the same time. There's a little bonus for you audiophiles. I've had to replace a section of Fredos' audio with a backup she recorded on her phone. If you spot it, allow yourself a moment of smugness. Back to Fredos, calling on South Africa's national selectors to be more honest and less apologetic when it comes to acknowledging the reality of transformation as a factor in selection. They need to be willing to say, yes, we picked someone over someone else to meet transformation criteria. We had it right now, before this Netherlands series, where Wayne Parnell was picked and Riley Rousseau was not. They're both Colpac returnees. Riley Rousseau's had an excellent run in the T20 competition. He hits the ball hard and far. He probably should have been picked. I don't think he was picked because the squad had enough batters, number one, although Quinton de Kock was being rested. So was Temba Baguma. So was Rassi van der Dussen. So was Aidan Markram. So there were a lot of reasons that they could have picked Riley Rousseau, but it would have thrown the numbers out as well. And I think it's absolutely fine to say we have not picked Riley Rousseau because these are our transformation numbers. That is a reality that we live with in South Africa. For generations, we accepted that it was absolutely fine that we put 11 white players on that field. So we can accept something else now. And I just don't think the conversation is had with enough of that honesty to it. Well, let's talk about transformation. And this often gets referred to as quotas, and you hear the term Machai Antini has talked about being viewed as a quota player, and other black players have talked about being viewed as a quota player, and that being used in the same way that stop writing letters and score more runs was used as a sledge to Kayazondo. We've heard that quota player is used as a sledge or as a way to diminish or to try and get under the skin of, to use a horrible euphemism, players of colour. Is it possible to accelerate that change? Because as you said earlier, it didn't happen organically. Without that feeling of resentment and without that feeling of the players who end up in these positions who we have to assume when they're picked deserve to play and in absolutely all of the cases that you mentioned are in many cases world-class performers how do you make sure that those players feel like they belong i think it's probably not possible to do it without resentment because privileged people don't want to give up privilege and privilege in a white south african context was justified for so long on religious grounds, on economic grounds, on geographic grounds. I mean, I live in Cape Town. It is an apartheid geography city. It's very clear where the white people were supposed to live and where the people of color were supposed to live. And what we're finding with that particular class of privilege is it is fearful, it is fragile, and it does not want to give an inch. For fear, I think that an inch will lead to the whole mile. But also, I think because giving an inch will lead to recognition that probably all of that privilege has been illegitimately gained. I don't think you can find a person from the colonial era, and the colonial era ended 
1948, but the legacy of it goes on, who, if they were born of a different skin color, would not have had a completely different life experience. So that reality and the acceptance of that, much of what I have and don't have is because of my skin color still needs to sink in. So no, I think there will be resentment for as long as that applies. I don't think we should be too worried if there's that resentment. That's fine. People can be resentful and the world has to leave them behind and move on and promote change because it's the right thing to do. And the resentment can get you so far. And then I don't know what's going to happen after that. Then you're going to stay resentful. We can't wait on you to get over your resentment before we change. In terms of feelings of belonging, yeah, I think that as a South African and especially as a Black South African, especially as a Black African South African, which I am not, and so I don't want to speak for our majority population, you belong because you're here, you belong because this land is all of ours. And I don't think there needs to be any other criteria for acceptance I think the problem comes in when you've got power structures and hierarchies and personnel who've decided who belongs and who doesn't. And so either those mindsets have to change and change quickly, or we have to move on from those mindsets and find people who are more willing to be accepting, more willing to be welcoming. I think that that's happening. I don't think, you know, when Temba Bavuma stood up the other day and said, for as long as he's been involved with the national team, and that's been seven years now, he has never felt like he doesn't belong. And Temba's come under massive amounts of pressure because he's only scored one test hundred in all this time. He bats a little bit too slowly for some people's liking in T20 cricket. And so if there's a player who is a black African player who would really be in the spotlight and would be made to feel like they don't belong, it's likely to have been him. And he said, that's not the case. And I believe him. So I think that it's changed. I think that at that level now, if you're there, you know that you deserve to be there. You're welcomed in by the team. Even though we had this whole issue with the taking of the knee at the T20 World Cup, I get the sense that there is some understanding in that team. I don't know whether they can name you stuff about what's happened in the history of apartheid and the legacy of that. I don't know if their knowledge extends beyond their little bubble. And especially now when I think the bubbles become even more of a reality because of the pandemic. But I think in their little circle, they seem to have reached an understanding of something. I don't think that's good enough. I think they need to understand the world because they live in it. But, you know, sports people don't always understand reality because privilege prevents them from that. So that's another conversation. I do think transformation is successful in South Africa. We wouldn't have had, you mentioned Makai and Tini, and yes, that's a very obvious one, but we wouldn't have had Hashim Amla, Vernon Philander, JP Dumini, Ashville Prince without transformation. So these are fantastic players who've done great things for the country. And yes, for every one of those, we probably lost a whole lot that we didn't know about because people weren't paying attention and they weren't being developed as well. And because people were just ticking boxes and saying, have we got our four players of color? Okay, fine. Now we don't do that anymore. I mean, I look at the Lions franchise and that's probably the best one to use as an example up in Joburg. For the last five or six seasons, they are regularly exceeding their targets. They are producing very, very good players of color. And they go and they seek them out. They bring them in from other provinces sometimes. And that is a really great example of transformation. You know, compare that to what happens in the Western Cape, where really you should see a proliferation of especially colored players coming through, people from the mixed race community, as you know, it would be offensive in the UK, but we have a racial grouping called colored. And really that's not happening there because the Western Cape and what goes on in the cricket structures here is a little bit messy and there's a lot of infighting and power politics. But if you look along the coast, you know, the Eastern Cape, Natal, and then even a little bit further inland towards kind of Kimberley area, yeah, we're getting a lot of players of color that are being produced. So I think it is changing, willingly or unwillingly, I don't know, but it's changing. We've also got a lot of coaches of color. We've got a lot of administrators of color. When those things change, everything tends to change with it. My concern maybe is that we're losing a lot of our, you know, white flight and our white expertise. So I think only Alan Donald in the top tier is our only white coach, actually, a domestic coach. But maybe that's what needs to happen for now. One of the issues that Aaron Pongiso raised in his testimony is, to put it bluntly, what black players and players of colour get to do when they're picked at franchise level. He had talked about making up the numbers, in a quite literal sense. Not bowling enough. Not batting. We hear of batters who have come through as top-order batters batting at five and six. We hear about players not being given a chance and made to feel marginalized within a team environment. What structures have been, can be, and are being put in place to make sure that 
in blunt terms, everybody who is picked is contributing and getting a chance to contribute the skills that, in theory, they are picked to perform? No structures anymore. I mean, that story of Aaron Pongisos comes from when he made his debut in the late 90s or early 2000s, and that was 20 years ago. So those things are not happening anymore. I'm not denying that they happen. They happened a lot. You'd get lots of black players who would be at number nine. They'd never bat and they'd never bowl. Specialist, fine leg to fine leg. That happened. I don't think that's happening anymore. And that's because, as I said, the coaching structures have changed. The administrative structures have changed. Our domestic system was always a bit mishmash. But now we've got a real structure. There are two tiers. There's relegation and promotion. They seem to have some sort of team identity back. So you're not really getting those situations as much anymore, if at all. I don't think that that's the concern now. I think now the concern is that there remains some resistance at the very top level from a particular group of privileged white players, but I think mostly they're former players. So we're talking about the ones who had a go at Lungi and Gidi, the Buddha Dipanas and Brian McMillans of this world. And I don't think that's a majority view. I think now there is at the least an acceptance that this is the way we're going to do things. So that's what's happening in what I can see. And someone like Aaron Pangiso went through all of that, very strongly got through all of it, and is now captaining his provincial team. So he's really senior and held in such high regard. And I think it's a testament to just what he put up with and how much he's come through. You talked about white players in positions of privilege, and that is certainly true at the team management level of South Africa at the moment, most notably Mark Boucher, Graham Smith previously Jacques Callis and Paul Harris. Jacques Fall, the former acting CEO, the headline probably from his testimony was saying that he didn't anticipate himself and those four players coming in as being viewed as a white takeover, which is somewhat how it looked when that group came into position. The core, the white core at least, of that great team of the sort of 2012-ish era. Mark Boucher's affidavit is public, well worth reading, very detailed. Amy de Villiers and Graham Smith have both submitted affidavits, neither yet public. Jacques Callis, as far as I know, has said nothing. Sean Pollock of a previous era, as far as I know, has said nothing. I haven't heard from Dale Stein or Morning Morkel either, or Faf Duplessis, who I guess would be key players in that group. We've had other things. Jacques Callis claimed that he was not appointed as a batting consultant because he is white, with a little bit of acceptance of it, but still. And Faf Duplessis got himself into a bit of trouble for allowing the phrase, he didn't see colour, to pass his lips, although he has subsequently apologised for it. And, of course, recently, we talked about it at the top of the show, we had Temba Bavuma having to go out at the toss at a World Cup and explain why his opening partner, Quinton de Kock, was not playing because he hadn't taken the knee. I understand from your reporting, from the reporting of others, that Cricket South Africa and the team have had numerous culture camps and conversations about Black Lives Matter, prompted by Lungi Ngidi after the murder of George Floyd. How did it come to it being played out in public quite so messily like that and how did it come to be that a player despite repeated urging within the bubble you talked about the privilege of the bubble within the bubble repeated conversations within the bubble decided to take that stance to the point of not playing in a major world cup game part of this is cricket south africa's fault because their borders changed and they were preoccupied with trying to keep the organization running and so did not hold these discussions with the team as often as frequently as deeply as they should have this should have been something that was decided not before this World Cup, not before last summer, but on that very first occasion when the conversation came up, when England and West Indies took a knee, the next thing that should have happened was Cricket South Africa, the men's team, the women's team, the under-19 team, and all the provincial teams saying, every time we play, we will all take a knee. That's what should have happened. Why it didn't happen is beyond me. One of the reasons that has come out quite strongly is that especially the white Afrikaans players, the religious ones, their churches have told them that taking the knee is a form of Marxist demonstration. And in South Africa, we have a history of being afraid of communism, and we call it the Roy Khafar, and it comes from the Cold War days and the Soviet Union helping the ANC. And so, therefore, they are not going to take the knee because they believe it is an act against God and... It's a sign of showing symbolism with a Marxist ideology. And nobody said that. And I've said to people involved in Cricket South Africa, if that is the reason that the white players don't want to take the knee, those of them who don't want to take the knee, then please let them appear in front of us and say that. And then the world can understand the ridiculousness of their argument because 
coming from us, it just sounds crazy, right? That really is the only reason that has been offered in whispers as to why people don't want to take the knee. That said, some white players have taken the knee throughout, like Rassi van der Dissen, like Kyle Verena, and then under duress, all of them, except Quinton de Kock took the knee. I think there is a little bit of artificiality in that we know that they were not taking the knee before, and then the board said take the knee, and then they took the knee. It's very obvious that they would not have taken the knee voluntarily and willingly, and that has a message of its own. The Quinton de Kock situation really, I find ridiculous in that his issue, as he later explained to us in his statement, was that he didn't want to be instructed what to do. Yet he's instructed what to do all the time when he plays for cricket in this country. He's instructed to wear pink on the day where they raise awareness for breast cancer. He's instructed to wear a black armband. He's instructed to turn up at the team bus at a particular time. What does he do? Say, I don't feel like doing that and I'm not going to do it. So his thing about not being wanting to be dictated to, again, is ridiculous. His other thing about some of my family are of color. I mean, I don't know why he needed to go there. I don't know why he needed to bring people into it in that way. And the some of my best friends are black argument or some of my best family are black or whatever he wanted to say there also sounded just a little bit off key. I think if he's got a problem with gesturing because it doesn't achieve anything, then he mustn't raise his bat every time he scores any runs. He mustn't do his finger gesture when his friend gets his finger shot off in Afghanistan or whatever that story was. So it's really difficult to understand what Quentin de Kock's issue is. The board, I don't think they should have waited until that moment. I think they could have acted earlier. But at the same time, they were not asking the team to construct a sandcastle before the match. They were saying, take a knee. It takes one second. Just do it. And it didn't need this other sideshow that happened. And I just think they'll never understand Quentin de Kock or his reasoning. I think what we now understand is that he's going to take a knee. And they're going to take a knee all summer when they play India, when they go to New Zealand, when they host Bangladesh, Omri Khan or no Omri Khan, there will be knee taking this summer. The board was concerned that it looks like a team that lacks unity, which I understand. Because what we saw at the World Cup was Australia, you know, Australia taking a knee. This is a country where our players have been racially abused when they go to Australia. And here was the Australian team taking a knee and the South African team doing some mishmash of things on the sideline. I understand why for an image perspective, it didn't look good. But then I think the board could have looked at the image months ago and been like, oh, this doesn't look good. Let's try and come up with a solution before we hit the World Cup. So be that as it may, this is where we are. Everybody will be taking a knee. The women's team haven't taken a knee either. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Presumably, they will also do it at the World Cup and they host West Indies later this summer. And I'm assuming the under-19 team will do it as well. The issue of the image was not unforeseeable. Indeed, it didn't look good when Quinton de Kock in the West Indies in the summer did not take a knee and then refused to explain why in the press conference afterwards. And I do note that Michael Holding has said a number of times, including I think at the SJN, certainly in the summer, that it was probably not a coincidence that a lot of teams took the knee when playing the West Indies and not otherwise. With Zimbabwe, the only black majority cricketing nation going, to close, we'll talk about impact. We want to come on to the wider impact, but how's this impacted on you as a reporter, as a person of colour? as a human being, whenever you talk about sport and politics, whenever you talk about race, it opens you up to the kind of people who decide that abuse is how they want to spend their time. How, how are you, <laughs> I think is the best way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting two years, I suppose, because I think Part of this experience and part of covering the SJN and being involved in race and cricket has really allowed me to find and express a voice that was always there. This was something I'd been talking about since I started writing about cricket. And I went back and found one of the first feature stories I wrote on Crick Info, which was about Hussein Malik and Faik Davids as the only two players of colour who toured in 1991 and why it was that they toured and why it was that no other players of color toured, and then they never went on to play for South Africa. And that story always really bothered me. So this is something I've always really felt quite strongly about. And I think it's allowed me to express it in different ways and explore different narratives. But it's also come at a time when I think the racial conversation is impacting almost every area of my life. So this is not the only thing I do. I'm a yoga teacher and I'm of South Asian background. I'm a third generation Indian in South Africa. So there's a lot of conversation happening around cultural appropriation and whiteness in yoga. As somebody from a Muslim background, there's conversations about the erasure of other kinds of Indians from yoga history, like Muslims and Buddhists and Jains. And it's such an interesting, nuanced and layered conversation. 
I've got a master's degree in the traditions of yoga and do a lot of research on yoga and politics. So to see these things come together has been interesting, but at the same time, it's been difficult. You may from this point hear occasional muffled thumping. This sparse and elegant percussion track was provided by Crick Buzz's South Africa correspondent Telford Weiss, to whom Ferdos is married, and whose mid-podcast organising she acknowledged not at all. Here's Ferdos on the impact of the SJN on South African cricket journalism. One of the big impacts of what's happened in the last few months has been what's happened to our journalism. We a small group of cricket writers in South Africa, and I guess it's changed a lot over the years. When I first started, definitely most of my colleagues were white men. Now most of my colleagues are men, but we have a good mix of people of different races. What this has done is torn us apart in some ways. We've seen a lot of the establishment and the older white journalists, and then we've seen younger journalists of color unable to meet each other. And some of what we've had is justification from some of our older white writers justifying racism. And then it also forced us to look at ourselves in the media box. How do we talk to each other? And how do the older journalists respond to the younger ones? How do the white journalists respond to the black ones? How do the male journalists respond to the female ones? You know, all these intersections have come up. And I think we're in a difficult place. We haven't seen each other face to face, I guess, for a year because South Africa haven't played cricket at home for that long. And we haven't had cause to be in each other's company. So it will be interesting when we are again. It's made us look at ourselves. It hasn't been easy, for sure. It's been a process of introspection, of learning and unlearning, and also of questioning ourselves. Personally, I've been in conversations with people over the years and sometimes not said, hey, listen, that's actually really offensive. And please, can you not say that? Sometimes for fear, sometimes because you don't want to rock the boat. I think now I definitely would not do that again and would, would say and, and have said, I don't think that these are appropriate conversations to have. Please look at your conduct. And now I'm saying it politely and pleasantly, but after a full day's play at the cricket in the hot sun staring in your face, things get heated and you get angry with each other. So it's taught me a lot of lessons, I guess. Let's close on a question of lessons learned by the wider cricket community and South Africa as a whole. We don't know, as you say, what the recommendations are going to be. We hope, and I was listening to Lawson Naidu, the current chair's testimony, and it seems, as far as I can tell, that he may be the right person in the right job at the right time, but we don't know exactly what will change on that level. What impact do you think this will have on the South African public's identification with the Proteas and with South African cricket in general? And... Will it prompt some, or has it already prompted some introspections about whether this whole process of reintegrating South Africa into international cricket was done in the right way, perhaps too quickly, and whether change needs to be built from stronger foundations? It's definitely prompted the lesser conversation, not least because of the 30-year anniversary and also because India are touring and, of course, they were the first country that we went to and then the first ones who came and visited South Africa. So I think this summer we'll have a lot more of those conversations and especially hopeful that the tour goes ahead with no glitches because then it will allow for the conversation to grow and to develop. I think the impact of the SJN has already been there. It's done a lot of things. It's made people uncomfortable primarily, which I think is not a bad thing. It's good to be moving into that zone of questioning. You were speaking about the way it was used maybe by those who accepted those deals for conspiring to fix matches. And that should never have happened. So I think if there's going to be a blight on it, it's going to be that. But hopefully the rest of what happened around it was strong enough and important enough that maybe the ombuds, and I think he should have said, actually, we're not covering this match fixing thing. I can't delve into this. Let's move on to other things, which he started to say towards the end. I think his recommendations, look, it will really depend on how powerful they are and also whether people are going to lose their jobs or not. So I think if we compare it to the situation in England where Yorkshire have sacked 16 staff members and you look at South African cricket where nothing's moved, actually, then people do start to wonder, should the recommendations be very strong and should people be out of jobs? And I think it's very tempting to say Mark Boucher and Graham Smith must go. And there's definitely a section of media and section of public who believe that. 
One of the things we have to realize about when Mark Bouch and Graham Smith took over was that we were in absolute crisis. We described this whole situation beforehand about the Tabang Marawi era. And yes, Graham Smith defaulted to his friend, who also happened to be a very good franchise coach who had won a lot of trophies with his team. But, you know, there were other franchise coaches winning things too. And does that happen because you default to your friend who happens to be white? And why is it that 27 years after democracy, you don't have a larger friendship group with more people of color? These are all other questions that we need to ask. I don't think immediately sacking them is going to achieve anything other than more chaos. Because already we know that India would not be coming to South Africa if not for the relationship between Graham Smith and Sarab Ganguly and the reassurances that he's been able to provide about the bubble and the way that the tour will be conducted. And that is a multi-million rand tour. Without it, the cricket in this country will collapse. So we need to use the expertise, the skills of people like Graham Smith and Mark Boucher, who then need to recognize that their expertise and skills have been gained partly through their own privilege. And I think once we get that recognition and we get the humility, because they've not shown humility, I'm not seeing humility at all. And those who didn't even appear in front of the ombud, we're not even seeing their humanity. We need to be able to see those things. And then we can move forward from that point. The social justice and nation building hearings in South African cricket were inspired by the broader scope of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But in closing, Firdos laid out her belief that nearly 20 years on, the SJN can in turn inspire change beyond the boundary. I think this was so necessary as a process. I think we should have it everywhere. We should definitely have it in rugby because a lot will come up from there. We should have it in the corporate world. We should be looking at ourselves as South Africans. We should be sitting around our dinner tables, looking around and asking this question of how do we treat each other? How do we choose our friends? What circles do we mix in? How do we relate to and understand each other? These are very, very important conversations. For me, I think if the SJN even makes a few people start to have those conversations, it's going to be a success. And already for giving a voice to people like Paul Adams, who said, I don't think I would have been able to say this before, like Aaron Pangiso, all these guys, Kaya Zondo for bravely coming and telling that story. It's done its job, it really has. The next phase of the SJN process could be really, really crucial in how South African cricket moves forward. You've been listening to Cricket Inside the Story. It was presented, produced and edited by me, Knuckle Pandey. My guest was Firdos Munda, ESPN Cricket Info's South Africa correspondent. The music is by Broke for Free and is available from the Free Music Archive. You can find more information in the show notes. If you've got a story to share, get in touch at cricketinsidethestory at gmail.com or at crickinsidestory on Twitter. If you like the show, give it a five-star rating and review, share and subscribe so I can make more.